For some time, I have lamented the fact that the art of telling a good story or even joke seems to be lost, which is why I jumped at the opportunity this week to spend time with author, speaker, storyteller and artist Paul Carter and enjoy a smorgasbord of truly amazing and captivating stories. Told with great poise, irreverence and certainly no political correctness, these stories include the true nature of life on oil rigs and big oil before health and safety, the brutal reality of desk jobs, becoming an acclaimed author with dyslexia, riding around Australia on the world's first bike that runs on cooking oil, the baby joke that will get you into trouble, sharing a smoke with primates and nearly dying on a National Geographic shoot, as well as many, many more. However, this isn't just one amazing story after another. Contained within this conversation, there are some really solid truths, values, and a firmness, particularly about the true nature of manhood, that I personally find missing currently in everyday conversation. This podcast isn't for everybody, but I truly valued and enjoyed my time with Paul unapologetically. Now, I don't normally tell people how to listen to podcasts, but this is quite a long one. You may want to sit down and just listen to the whole thing. But I would suggest, if you haven't got the time, just listen to one story after another after another. And I promise you, if you enjoy it, you're going to have a great time. So enjoy, Paul. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Working on oil rigs, writing books, riding around Australia on a bike that runs on cooking oil. Strap in for today's episode with author, speaker, storyteller and artist, Paul Carter. Paul, welcome to the show. Hello, Bryn. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met a Bryn before. You've not? We had a cat when I was a boy. It wasn't my cat, it was my dad's cat. Yeah. And he was called Bryn. Oh, right. He was, um, he was, a, a, he was a really awful... Um, well, no, he was beautiful, but he, he was a street cat. Right. Dad, dad took him in and... Uh, he was just a big, manly ginger Tom. He'd been in a million fights. You oh, know. Yeah. His, his, both ears had been split, and and you know how they roll up. Yes, they'd rolled up into his head. Yeah. So he he looked like this cat with no ears, scars. I think he'd had a stroke. All right. Um, and he and I became very close. Uh, we would uh, we would hide from Dad. He was Did Dad a, give him the name Bryn? Bryn, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dad had a lot of Welsh mates. Yeah. He was in the military. Right. And um, he, he named the cat Bryn. And uh, my very happy childhood memories of uh, of hiding from my father with Bryn. Because <laughs> Dad, Dad was a bash now, questions later, military man. Yes. Product of 1950s. Right. Uh, so... Um, he he would uh, often walk around the house, and I would I would move Bryn's. Um, he was an overt snob, the cat that would that would only drink milk if I pre-popped any bubbles on the surface All right. of his saucer. So I would I would move the saucer, I'll and then Bryn's cool, yeah. And and then and then Dad would would sort of march around the house and catch the edge of the saucer with his heel, and and milk would shoot up his trouser leg, and then the beatings would commence. So Bryn and I would hide. Indeed. From Dad. Indeed. Well, that's... But apart from that, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Awesome. <laughs> so there's your Bryn story. 
Um, so you came, one of the first things I like to do with all the guests is understand how they ended up in Western Australia, whether they're born here or moved here. So I understand you came here when you were 15? Yes. With your mum? Yes. Why was that? Um, my parents uh, separated when I was seven. Right. Um, and it was one of those separations where the, the father um, was... Um, their marriage was, was yeah she lived in fear and he was he was he was a, a scary guy yeah a really scary guy yeah um you know he was the dad that would 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 make you go in the garden and find a stick that he's going to beat you with right and you would come back and he'd send you away and you'd end up sort of dragging half a tree in through the back door and by then you're so terrified so it wasn't so much a physical thing it was mental um and then you know one day mum got the strength to to run so it was that crazy bailing up the kids at two in the morning in their doona. Right. And I remember it. And she, she woke me with her index finger across her lips and picked me up in my doona and stuck me in the car. And uh, she ran. Yeah. And um, we moved into a council flat in, um, in Aberdeen. Uh, and mum was working in a motel near the airport. And the 40s... Um, field was booming at the time. It was just kicking off in Aberdeen. The yeah. offshore oil exploration that changed Aberdeen from, you know, a quiet sort of fishing town into the the, the biggest hub for oil and gas activity in in, uh, in Europe. Yeah. The biggest heliport in Europe. And uh, an American gentleman had come over, um, and he was setting up a machine shop um, and supplying uh, directional drilling tools to um, offshore rigs. And he checked into that motel because it was very close to where uh, Tri-State had set up their workshop. And my mother is German and she spoke, uh, she obviously speaks and writes German. And uh, at the same time that uh, Tri-State were, were doing that, they were setting up another machine shop and office in Cellar in, in Germany. And uh, just from checking the guy in <clears throat> a couple of times on his first two trips, he, he, uh, he realized that mum had good, good communication skills and... And uh, she was fluent in German as well as English. And he said, "Look, I need a, I need someone as a as a as a secretary, you know, at yeah. the time, uh, 1977." And uh, he said, "Do you want a job?" And Mum said, well, "Well, you know, what's it pay?" And he, it was three times what she was making raising two kids on her own, you know. Yeah. And uh, she took the job, and and uh, he he turned out to be uh, an incredibly generous, decent man uh, who looked after his people. And Mum. Mum was about a year working for. His name was Jack Jackson, right? Uh, Jesse Thomas Jackson. I'll never forget him. He was uh, he was awesome, and he knew that Mum was a single mum, and uh, I would I would regularly uh, skive off school and I would misbehave very badly. And, yeah. And Jack, um, in in a way, took me under his wing a little bit, and uh, he got me uh, he put me to work in the in the workshop laboring and washing vehicles and sweeping up swarf from around the lathes and, and, and washing down drilling tools when they came in as a little kid. But he would, he would give me money. He would, right. He'd stand there with his hand in his pocket, jiggling the change. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd do that job and he'd say, you want to wash my car, Paul? He was from Louisiana. Sorry, Jack, um, he was raised in, he was born in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. He's a lovely, he had that lovely yeah. drawl about him you know that that southern drawl he was just a lovely man and he you know he'd give me 10 pound 
Yeah. You know, that there's a lot of money in those days. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I worked my ass off and, and, and loved, loved that he was interacting with me. And, and then I started hanging out with the, the guys on crew change in the, in the change rooms. I'd run down there on a Saturday. And, and in those days, they were all big, burly men. A lot of them were Americans, full sleeve tats, a lot of them ex-military. Yeah. A lot of them ex-cons. Yeah. And they'd slip buck knives in my pocket and, and playing cards with naked ladies on the back and, and roughhouse me around in the in the workshop. And it yeah. was, oh, fuck, I loved it. I bet. And, uh, Real sense of belonging in there. In yeah, the exactly. It was great. And I wanted to be like like them. Right. And then Jack said, we, we're, we're setting up a machine shop in, in Perth, Western Australia. And... Um, I'm going over there to set that up. Do you, do you, the company will pay, you know, do you want to go? Uh, go? And mum leapt on the opportunity and said, absolutely. Mm. My sister was, is five years older than me. So she'd already moved. She left home early. Um, she, she met a young man and, and got off and got married at 19. And so mum and I arrived in Perth, August, 1985. Cool. And she started working and that was me. Never had the urge to go back to Aberdeen? No, no. In the in the first twenty four hours, I went to Collisloe Beach. I'd never seen a, a woman in, in in bathers before, right? And we had to drag my ass off the beach, you know. <laughs> yeah, because I, I how old was I when we got here? Fifteen, you know. So so, you know, you're not going to go to the beach in Aberdeen, <laughs> the North Sea, you know. No. So so, oh, it was heaven, you know. People 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 had two cars and lived in a house with a garden, and 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 had a pool. And every other kid had a had a pool in the backyard. It was it was like Disney World, you know. Mm. So very grateful that that we ended up here. Yeah. Mm. So he he changed. This is firmly home now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Jack Jackson changed the family's trajectory mm. forever by hiring my mother. Right. So look, we'll dive into. You working on rigs and writing books and stuff in a minute, but there's a strong sense of um, storytelling in what you do. Where does that come from? My father. Right. Why is that? Is he a storyteller? A massive storyteller. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, and and his mother. Yeah, they're all from South London. Right. Um, and spin a yarn. He can spin a yarn. Yeah, Dad was was always. He he, he was a yeah. Funny, um, you know, people when he died, people would, um, at his funeral, people would come barreling up to me and say, Oh, you know, life and soul, life and soul of the party, you know, always, always making me laugh, always telling a funny story. So there were, there were two sides to him. I didn't get to see much of the, the, uh, the funny storytelling, lovable, you know, yeah, character. I, I saw more of the, uh, <laughs> You know, the, the, the one, you know, the other one. The other one. Yeah, the ugly one. But he did soften later in life. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a, a large chunk of time there where um, I just didn't see him, had no contact with him. Yeah. It was just me and mum, you know. Did you go and initiate, go and find again? I did. Yeah, I did. I, I, um, I'd already started working on the rigs. I was 19 and um, I, I just yeah. rang him up. I just rang him up. And he answered the phone and uh, I said, I'm, I'm in Changi, Singapore. I used to get off the rig in those days and I'd, we'd always crew change through um, Singapore because that was our main hub for Southeast Asian operations. Yep. 
So a bachelor, no fixed address. I'd get off the rig. I'd end up in Singapore, and I'd just stand in the airport at the you know the, the big board yeah. before it was electronic, and we'd go and all the fucking flights or what was happening where, and I'd literally just stand there. And in those days, we got paid in cash, greenbacks. So I've done six weeks, sometimes two months offshore, and I'm straight to the office, get paid, straight back to Changi, or sometimes I'd stop in this bar called the Handlebar and, and get drunk with the crew, yeah. which was fun. That was when Singapore was fun. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a bar, you ride your motorcycle into, it was just off Orchard Road on this massive yeah. quarter acre block. It doesn't exist anymore, but you had to ride through this jungly sort of front yard into this bar and ride your bike through it park it out the back and then the bar was oval shaped and the 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 stools had 50 cc engines in them (laughs) and you paid a 50 buck deposit and there was a set of handlebars that would that would clip into the stool and you'd start (laughs) it and the idea at the handlebar was you'd race around and they put your beer on the on the bar and (laughs) and you had to grab your beer drink and then put it down again then do a lap and then pick it up again and without (laughs) spilling or crashing or yeah so we'd usually do a session at the handlebar, and then I'd um, I'd go back to the airport, pissed, and stare at the big board, and I'd just going. choose randomly. You know, I'm going to go to Cancun and get my teeth cleaned, or I'm going to go to Guatemala, and I'd just buck off and, and blow my entire paycheck. I had a house brick of greenbacks in my pocket, which I'd burn through very quickly and end up back on the rig with nothing but some filthy polaroids and a story to tell and i kept that up for way way too long yeah and it was one of those crew changes where i i just had this i needed to i thought i was a man i was ready to confront my father and and say right i'm a man now and i'm working on the rigs and and i can handle myself and 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 that didn't work out quite that way (laughs) i rang him up i rang him up and said i'm jumping on this plane to london i'll be there in 13 hours or whatever and um, and I saw him and that was a bit weird because um, there was a, there were a lot of things about him that were just like me but if you haven't spent time with your father and then suddenly you do as a man uh, it was a wee bit disconcerting because a lot of those idiosyncrasies and habits and for example um, the whiskey that he drinks is the whiskey that I drink and there's a lot of whiskeys that you can choose from Yes, but his go-to is Macallan eighteen, and that was also mine, and uh, just little weird things like that. You know, after he died, I, I missed him so much. Um, it was no facultatory thing, so I actually tried to. I mixed equal parts WD forty, Old Spice, Cordite, and single malt whiskey <laughs> in an egg cup, and whizzed it round with my finger, and then sat in my shed. <laughs> sniffing my finger and I was I was th- I was that's dad yeah yeah that's dad because I'll close my eyes and you get a much bigger better uh, trigger yeah, yeah if you close your eyes and um smell and and and, and so I would try and and conjure up my father by by <laughs> the alchemy of mixing shit in an egg cup but it worked because when I was a kid I used to put his uh, he, he was an air force pilot and I used to put his his helmet on sits it there sitting up there I used, yeah. to, I used to put his helmet on, and, it, and it, obviously he's got he's got his bone dome on. He's in a he's in a, a cockpit all day long. He's sweating in it. Yeah, and and a distinct smell. That smell is very much imprinted because I, I all I ever wanted to do is wear his gear, so I put it on. Yeah, I put his helmet on and run around and getting told off and 
so that, I don't know why I'm telling you that um, yeah so you started on the rigs quite early was it 8, 16? 16 yeah was, what was that like? Uh, really 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 terrifying yeah uh, I was I wasn't I was misbehaving a lot and I wasn't doing well at school I'm very dyslexic um, so I was pegged in the British system as being um, well below standard and, and would have been held back um, and then I arrived in Australia and the system was a little bit better but not that much yeah. so I, was, I wasn't doing well at all at school with numbers, with writing uh, and, and started to rebel a little bit um, lacking the father figure direction Hmm. Um, and so mum decided the, the best way to go was I either join the army and get some discipline or um, it was Jack said stick him on the rigs Yeah, it'll make him or break him and so I, I went to work hmm. and I was, I was lucky I, I fell into a crew that uh, of older guys who were patient and uh, particularly uh, Erwin Herzeg yeah. He remained my boss for the next 22 years. And, yeah, he's 15 years older than me. And uh, I was very lucky. Erwin, Erwin took me under his wing. And, and I learned from, uh, from a guy who is the, uh, the best man I've ever met in, in every respect. Yeah, what, do you, so what do you mean by that? He's... he's how can I describe it? Erwin is... Um, He's got a fearsome reputation, and he's a big guy, um, and he's extremely good at his job. So he's well respected in the industry. Um, it's a it's a hard nut to crack in oil and gas because he's the guy that you can. If you're in a fight, Ir Irwin's right behind you. you. You know you've got to kill him to stop him. Yeah. Uh, but he's incredibly gentle and charming. Right. You know, he's the guy that'll charm your pants off while he's throttling you to death with a telephone cord, <laughs> and you'll let him because he's so nice. Right. right. He's that guy. Right. Um, yeah. And he's 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 just an incredibly good father. He's got four children, and just did such a good job balancing that ever so difficult crew change. Yeah. Um, and his wife is equally brilliant. So they made it work. They are the only couple I've ever met in the oil and gas industry, hands down, that actually work. love each other and made it properly work. Yeah. He never, ever strayed, ever. Yeah. And believe me, I would know. He, 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 just, he never, ever put a foot wrong. He never lied to her, never messed around, never, ever. He always just stayed. Ah, oh, just the guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, he really is astonishing. Yeah, um, just a hundred percent. Yeah, you trust trust him with my life, trust him with my kids' lives. Um, yeah, I was very lucky to meet him because every other guy I met was was was, you know, typical oil field. <laughs> which means which means anything goes. You know, anything goes. Mm. What happens in Vegas? You know, what it, the proper nutters? You know, the oh god. But but Erwin was always um, and and as a result of that, the guys on his crew were equally together and organised and and so um, 
I was the youngest and the most wayward. Um, and I had to be disciplined a few times yeah. in, the, in his fashion. And that, and that straightened me out. I would be dead. Happily say that. I, I definitely would not be here if, yeah. if, he, if he hadn't intervened a couple of times. Yeah. Mm. We were working in Colombia and, uh, and I was going off the rails. Coke, hookers, just... And this is, Escobar was still alive. And, right. and, and uh, <laughs> anything goes. Uh, and uh, just I was all caught up in it as a 24-year-old. And then suddenly I find myself forcibly transferred to Brunei for three years, which is the oil and gas equivalent of the Betty Ford Clinic. Yeah. So you will go to Brunei. No, oh, yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no legal addictive stimulants or otherwise available in Brunei. There's no one to fuck, yeah. fight. There's nothing to take or do. So you, you, you either make it or you don't, right? So after that three years in the jungle, um, you know, clean and sober and, and uh, fitter than I've ever been in my life. Yeah. And uh, absolutely screwed the nut and, and, and found my, my, my balance. Mm. as a 28 year old and, and then transitioned back into uh, the western world yeah. um, and it was great because uh, I had a completely different outlook on everything and uh, yeah never touched never touched drugs again um, rarely drink uh, but it was that process and he didn't just send me there he came with me he right. wasn't there the whole three years but he was in and out yeah. Every two, three months, he'd turn up and stay for a couple of months. Mm. And, uh, and he was constantly checking on me, constantly checking, checking, making sure, looking so at all real. the jobs I was doing offshore, yeah. looking at everything that I was doing. And it would have comms regularly with my mum. I was shocking communicating with my family. Yeah. And he, he really did put yeah. the effort and the time in. And, and, uh, That's a real gift, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ultimately, to replace him. I, I was I, I replaced him when he uh, when he um, left because nobody nobody really keeps that level of work up um, into their fifties. It's just too physically demanding. Yeah. Um, so I replaced him when he transitioned out, but didn't find someone to pass my knowledge on to like he did with me. Right. That never happened. Because the industry morphed and changed into this new fly-by-wire cyber chair thing that um, oil and gas is, it's unbelievable. The, the, the amount of money and tech that gets poured into it, it's like the space race in the 60s. Yeah. So at, at the drill floor that I learned, I cut my teeth on, is <laughs> laughed upon in, in oil and gas today yeah. in, in that short time frame. You think about it, it's astonishing. Mm. You know, we've gone from eight guys on the floor, you know, permanently damaging their thoracic spine and literally cutting things off their body yeah. <laughs> to, to two dudes in the uh, in, in a perspex bubble with a heads up display just pressing buttons yeah you know it's Is that a, a good thing or a... I think it's great because the uh, it, it, ha it has to it has to move forward yeah. so that the amount of um, lives and injuries that have been avoided through tech the, the data the data is really impressive but um it also creates other headaches in terms of the, the mechanics of drilling a hole in the ground. Yeah. A, a lot of the time, um, you, you, you know, I'll sit there in these meetings thinking, Jesus, if we just did that with a conventional rig, we'd actually be done by now. Right. Okay, we might have killed a guy, but you know. Yeah, someone might have lost a leg. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. It's uh, the challenge now is 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 water depth. That's the that's the thing now. Back then it wasn't. It was just about how quickly can you can you drill a hole in the ground and, and get the hydrocarbons out. Now yeah. it's much more complex because we've tapped into everything that's easy to get to. Yes. Um, and we've gone past that. And now we're we're going through the decades of well, you know, now we have to have another major land war in the Middle East. So we're running out of wars to to have over oil. Yeah. Now we're sort of forced to push the boundaries of deep water exploration and extended reach drilling. Mm. Um, because it's a water planet. Yeah. And 60% oh. of it is, is water that's over a mile deep, and we have no idea what's down there. No. Billions of barrels of hydrocarbons. It's just accessing them, mm. which is redundant anyway, because we don't find a viable alternative that's sustainable at the Bowser. Within the next century, we're going to fuck the planet forever. And yes. I have no doubt about that. Mm. So, so it's all a bit academic, really. Tell me about how you got into writing. I understand does it have something to do with an appeal letter for a failed Yes. Yeah. Uh, BP uh, Sackland 5 was the campaign. Yeah. Um, Is it in Russia? Yeah. So uh, I'm just trying to think about how to paint the picture. Traditionally, your big evil oil multinational makes a deal with... uh, the government of the country that they want to exploit. So um, they'll say, we want to drill. I'll give you a, a good example is Colombia, right? So, so the oil and gas entity says, we've done some seismic work with airplanes and we've flown about all over the jungle and we think there's oil here. And they'll point at a grid reference in the middle of nowhere. And they'll say, we want to drill uh, you know, eight wells in that concession. That's five square miles of, of dense tropical rainforest. And the government says, yeah, right, um, give us 50 million in unmarked bills. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. everybody gets paid off. And uh, was happy. And was so cool. then they, they come in and uh, drop high explosives on the jungle and, and vaporize it. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not moving the trees or planting one for every one that they pull. They just fucking blow it up, right? Yeah. We used, to call it, we used to call it instant autumn. It's all done with helicopters. <laughs> Instant autumn, because there's shockwave that that's um, that reverberates around from where the ordnance detonated. All the all the all the trees and, and fluffy animals fall off and erect the rig and commence with drilling. And the government gets a, a little taste, um, and the rest is moved back to. For example, America via the Cano Limon pipeline, and in yeah. the early '90s, that was pumping 500,000 barrels a day into the American machine, and they will protect the flow at any cost. Yes, that's one of the first things I learned. It's called security of supply. No one fucks with the oil. No one. Yes, and they'll and they'll protect it. You'd be you'd be staggered mm-hmm. at how how far they'll go. You know, it's it's astonishing. Security supply is everything. Yeah. Um, for example, recent history, uh, America really pushed the envelope in terms of um, wanting to get away from the importing of hydrocarbons from the Middle East and from South America. And so with well um, stimulation technologies and fracking, uh, they were able to go back into millions of wells that had been drilled 
um, prior to the turn of the last century in America and get those wells back online. Yeah. Because essentially they just pumped a cement plug in them because they'd stopped flowing under their own volition. Yeah. And they were able to go back into those wells, frack, stimulate, pump, and they all came back online. So in this tiny five-year window, America went from importing over 90% of its hydrocarbons to being completely self-sustainable. That's unheard of. That's yeah. astonishing. And the knee-jerk reaction globally to that was panic. You know, the, 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 the Middle East, for example, that's, that's all they do. That's supply their income is supply America yeah. with hydrocarbons. And suddenly the tap gets turned off. Oh, we don't need it anymore. We've got our own oil. And that was what kicked off the worst oil and gas recession since the end of World War II in That's October. Years ago. Yeah, October um, 2015. Yeah. The price of oil just went <laughs> to nothing. And yeah. Australia's oil and gas business was collateral damage to that. Because yeah. once it got below, shit, once it got below $50 a barrel, it's, it's not economically viable to keep drilling. Yeah. It's costing too much. So the, the impetus was to flood the market with cheap oil to destabilize the price. And that's what they did. But that's not, you can't sustain that indefinitely. Yeah. There isn't that much in reserve to keep doing it. But they did it and it worked very well. And it, it dropped a, a bomb on oil and gas. Mm. Everybody lost their job. Yeah, me included. You included. I, I held on by the skin of my teeth. Everybody I come into contact with now is a 28-year-old graduate drilling engineer. It's the brave new oil and gas. The old school guys are thin on the ground now. So that's a bit disconcerting because a lot of the public speaking gigs that I get related to the books, um, I find myself in these, at these dinners giving a keynote or doing an awards night to 1,000, 2,000 oil and gas people. For example, the OTC in Houston. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, every, every, everybody's young and, and it's all the new technology that's coming in. It makes me feel so old. Yeah, uh, you know, we've brought that fossil in. Yeah, oh, that guy. No, I've my books are required reading for 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 drilling engineering students. So they, a lot of the people I'm coming into contact with now, read my books while they were studying. Yes, and the rigs and the drill floor and the stuff I'm talking about in book one is doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't exist anymore. It's like it's like watching an old cowboy film. You know, yeah. it, it just puts you in this really weird space because I'm, I'm, I'm not that old no. you know I've only just cracked 50 but I might as well be 150 in their eyes because <laughs> the, the old drill floor is oh, you, you used to throw chain yeah, throwing chain on a piece of drill pipe to make it up wow that's just mad mm. you know that's like talking about sending a carrier pigeon to someone that's got their head planted in their twatter account or whatever you know <laughs> anyway well, I asked you about um Oh, what was the question? How did you end up? Oh, a Russia. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Was I talking about Russia? Yeah. So, um, and the letter. The the Sakhalin Five campaign um, was just after nine eleven. Yeah. Another another cataclysmic event oh, that yeah. changed the world forever. And oil and gas's knee jerk reaction to that was, well, fuck, you know, a drilling rig in the middle of the ocean is essentially a bomb with no detonator. What the fuck are we going to do? Because there's a significant dollar value attached to that asset, aside from the 150 plus souls on board. How do we protect that asset? And prior to that happening, Somalia was becoming a real problem. Yeah. And um, the international maritime community, including the insurance brokers, just 
couldn't control it. Piracy was getting out of control. There was a gun-related fatality just in the Straits of Malacca on average four times a week. Right. People don't realize open water is is really dangerous. Yeah. Aside from Mother Nature, there are all kinds of bad people out there. And everybody turned their back on policing it and let oil and gas do it themselves. So we're talking wildly scary tooled up PMCs, private military contractors, and, yeah. and it was security of supply. I'll say it again, security of supply. Yeah. And so that, that was already being allowed to happen. And yeah. then nine eleven happened. And the impetus was put back on the operator to do much more thorough vetting of foreign nationals that come into your country to extract your hydrocarbons. Right. And the Russians took that very seriously. Yeah. So the, the medical... Um, vetting for the crews that were going to go and do Sacklin 5 was like nothing I'd ever seen before because the sea of a Korsk freezes up. So they had a window of three months to drill that well. So tow the rig up from Singapore, spud the well, drill the well, complete the well, and get out before the rig is trapped in the ice and can't leave. Yeah. So they wanted everybody on that rig. You're not doing a month-and-month -month crew change or whatever. You are there till the well is drilled. So from a psychological point of view, you need to prepare yourself to go out and live in Tupperware on this atoll in a really rough part of the world where it's minus 50 with wind chill and be prepared to stay there for three months. And often the crew change wouldn't happen because the MH choppers the Russians were doing the crew changes with fly-by line of sight. There was no electronic medium there. So yeah. if they can't see the helideck, then, you know, then they're kind of, you're not getting a crew change. Yeah. And also it was quite far offshore so they're turning the chopper into a flying gas can and they reach their pnr mm. their point of no return they've ex expired half their fuel yes. they're committed to landing on that rig yes. so if that heli deck is heaving on all axes you can imagine how hard it is to put a helicopter down on a yeah. on a on, on the big h if it's moving yeah so some of the crew changes were just oh horrible yeah i'm not i'm not a great person um to be in an aircraft which is dumb because my dad was a fighter pilot but I'm not a comfortable flyer yeah. and I've had that many chopper flights where I've oh just yeah I'm never doing this again <laughs> fuck I'm never going back in a helicopter ever again uh, you know I've gotten off I've gotten off and kissed the ground you know literally um, so so the vetting process for Cyclin 5 was, was uh, a psychometric evaluation involving interviews with psychiatrists and psychologists and all manner of testing. Mm. And I failed right. <laughs> really badly. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I'd come off a crew change out of Vung Tau in Vietnam. I was on a Santa Fe rig mm. and uh, my, my back to back hadn't turned up. So I'd done 72 hours on the drill floor continually working. Yeah. And in terms of today's QHSE policies and safety, that's I'm, I'm, what? So the medic was giving me drugs to keep me awake so I could keep doing my job and then caught my chopper to, to town and then flew commercial airliners to Singapore, got off the plane in Singapore. And my boss is waiting for me saying, I'm sorry, pal, this was booked months in advance. You've got to go from here to Changi Medical Center and start your medical evaluation for Sacklin 5. And okay. I, I was so strung out yeah shaking hadn't if you don't sleep 
for extended. It's a form of torture. Yeah. You know, once you crack 48 hours, you are fiddling with your sanity. Yes. And I was approaching 80 hours and I find myself sitting in front of this Australian psychiatrist who looked like a cross between a King Charles Spaniel and a hippie. And he, he's waxing lyrical, asking me questions. What's your relationship like with your father? Anyway, that ended really badly. And yeah. um, I'm back in the hotel and Drew rang me, my boss's boss. And he's an ex-Marine Corps lieutenant. And, and Drew was like, Paulie, don't fuck this up. We need to win this tender. You're the crew chief. I need you to write a letter of apology to that man and ask for another appointment to start the process again because you just failed so badly, you know. Yeah. And that turned into this 5,000-word rant on what's wrong with oil and gas to put a guy like me in a position like that in the first fucking place. And I wrote down exactly how I was feeling and went back the next day and, and gave him the letter. I wrote it in the hotel room, drank the mini bar on the hotel stationery with a biro and waited in the waiting room. And I heard him laughing inside his office and he came out and he said, that is the funniest document I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Yes, we shall reevaluate you. Go back to your hotel and go to bed, and, which I did. Yeah. And um, we started the process and I passed. And about a year later, I managed to get a hold of my own um, medical jacket, my, my workup. And it's a horrible document to read, Bryn. Yeah. You know, you've got two... two um, people dissecting your brain um, and it's just a, it's a brutally straight up and down pigeonholed boom 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 your strengths your weaknesses all of those things um, clearly identified yeah um, all the blood work that they did you know everything about you as a as a as a, as a physical being and a, and a, and a, and a and an, ent- an entity yeah totally dissected in this in this medical document and I got a hold of it which took some doing because I wanted to read it. Um, and then I had a copy of the letter I'd written at the beginning of the process. This is 12 months later. I got my, yeah. my file and I sent the whole thing to a best mate of mine in Sydney who knows me really well. Yeah. Uh, and he showed it to his wife. And then Sally went ahead and sent my letter to a friend of hers that works in publishing. Yeah. And I'd come back from another crew change in Russia of three months and there's a, a message on, on my answering machine. Hi, Paul. You don't know me. My name's Sue Hines. I'm the trade publishing director at Allen & Unwin. Anyway, I just read your psych evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to have a meeting about um, writing a book. So I rang her up and I said, what? You know, what? Yeah. And uh, I said to her, I'm a high school failure. I didn't finish high school and I'm dyslexic. Doesn't matter. Can we have a meeting? Okay, so... We met and she said, just go away and write your story down. And that's how it happened. Yeah. So I did that. And uh, and then they that must have been published. Quite a bit of a... Don't tell mum. Fuck, this is weird. Yeah, it was. So I just wrote the way I would tell the story. Yeah. If, if we were sitting in a pub. Yeah. That's the narrative of the book. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm not going to win a booker for literature. No. You know. <clears throat> it's just... Just I actually a, read it when I first started at Chevron. Ah. Yeah. And yeah, it's called Don't Tell Your Mum Will Work on the Rigs. She thinks I'm a piano player in a horse. Whorehouse. Where did that title come from? <laughs> <laughs> uh the, the the it's it's an oil and gas expression. Right. It goes it goes back to the early days of uh 
of oil and gas right back to the early days of, of you know the the uh, before the war you know right. 1930s oil and gas it was just frowned upon because only I mean, you know chain gangs forced labor uh, most of the guys working in oil and gas in, yeah. in its early days were criminals cons hard nuts people that um, society frowned upon so mm-hmm. it you know don't tell mum I work on the, you know, it's much more civilized to be playing a piano in a whorehouse than working on the drill floor. <laughs> and I, that always made me laugh. Yeah. And I heard that from Jack Jackson. Yeah. Way back in the day when I was a kid. And uh, when I was thinking of a title, I thought, there you go. That's, that's yeah. the title. So how did the book do? Yeah, great. Two, 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 well, I think I'm up to 2.8 million copies now sold. Far up. Yeah. And then where did it go from there then? Uh, well, then, uh, obviously, Alan and Unwin, the <clears throat> publishing house, had sold the rights to, unsold the rights to, you know, American publishers, European publishers, foreign language. E-books started to happen. Audio books started to happen. And they said, you need to write another one. And so I did. I wrote, um, This Is Not a Drill, which is the sort of last four years of my offshore career. When it was starting to change dramatically, the internet happened and the adventure and the humor and the knowledge base and the stories stopped immediately. Right. The, the minute the internet, the depth and everything just dissipated like it was gone. I remember it. I have very, very clear memories of that. Yeah. The first Wi-Fi magic box on the roof in the radio room. Guys were already going offshore with their laptops, you know, to, to watch films and, and to, to, to wait their turn for their 15 minutes to log on to Hotmail and still making radio sat phone calls back home. You got 10 minutes a week yep. with like a 20-second delay. It's impossible to have a conversation. Hi, love, how are you? Yeah. And then, you know, oh, just too hard, right? Yeah. And then one day... There's this little box with lights and an aerial and poof, everybody disappeared into their room. Yes. Finished their tower on the drill floor, 12 hours work, shower, food, on their bunk, curtain closed. On the internet. And that was it, finished. It's interesting you say that actually. Because um, I grew up in England and like, the old boy used to be in the pub fair bit and he would him and his mates would meet up Friday night and they would just share jokes that they've heard right from all the different places they've been to during the week exactly exactly the art of storytelling yeah and I grew up listening to them and just they were my role models and they were the people who you know, I listened to how they told jokes, how they told funny stories, how they did this, how they did that. And now, you know, it. I can't remember the last time someone actually told me a good funny joke. I've got one for you. It Just one sec, and then I'll hear it. Um, now it's more, and you can't see this on the podcast, but now it's somebody pointing their phone towards yeah, their yeah, friend yeah, and oh, going, oh, have yeah, you seen this one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's just, like, lost. That's why I was really keen to come talk to you today, because like storytelling is always, you know, you get this stuff like, oh, come and learn how to do storytelling. It's like, well, fuck it, I grew up listening to people telling stories, fucking funny ones. Yeah. 
Go on, tell me a joke. Oh, that's my favourite joke. Go on. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of your listeners would have heard it. But it's just so nice. Okay. Um, <clears throat> nice guy, hard worker, good husband, good father. Just a good old round chap. Knocks his pan out, runs his own business. And he's successful and everything's great. Then he starts to hemorrhage money. He's just bleeding cash flow. Doesn't talk to his wife about it. And he borrows against the, the debt, trying to consolidate. And he's still hemorrhaging. It's not working. He starts drinking. Can't stop. And he's hitting it hard. And his wife, Irene, notices the change. And she says, listen, horse. Fucking screw the nut. Or I'm going to leave your drunk ass. Okay. <laughs> so he goes down to the pub, of course, and gets blind drunk with his mate. And it's closing time. And he's standing out the front pissed out of his mind and throws up all over himself and his mate Dave says Jesus fuck John fuck man you go home like that she's going to leave you he goes help me he says well, what do you want me to do he says give me your shirt he said I'm not giving you my shirt but here you go he sticks 20 bucks in his top pocket he says when you get home you tell Irene that some young bloke threw up on you in the pub gave you the money to get the shirt cleaned and she might give you a break at least buy yourself some time he's like thanks buddy barrels through the front door she clocks him launches off the couch off the couch that's it <laughs> you're a pissy ass waste of groceries I'm fucking he goes whoa baby no 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 the young guy threw up on me look he gave me $20 to pay for the dry cleaning and she said is that right well why do you have two $20 bills sticking out your pocket he said oh well the other one's from the guy that shat in my pants <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that I love it love it love it um, yeah so so that's that's I remember watching that happen and that was the end of um, the the lunacy and the and the and the fun stuff and we used to make our own fun you know I remember in Nigeria we got um, a generator had to be choppered out in this plywood packing in this massive plywood packing. so the roughnecks as soon as the roustabouts and roughnecks of the yeah. laborers on the rig as soon as they'd finished work they got hammer and nails and they made a half pipe and then they chop it out and the next, you know, they were making this thing. And then they, they, they spoke to the guys in town. They sent skateboards out to the yeah. rig. And they're, they're all young guys. And they're, <laughs> and they're catching big air on the heli deck. This fucking yeah. thing's on the big H. <laughs> and this one guy got that really high. The wind, he just sailed like, you know, 150 feet into the South China Sea. Bah! Tumbling. Oh, launch the fast rescue boat. Go and get it. Go and get it. <laughs> and do, doing just lunacy like that you know we used to go diving i used to bring my scuba gear out to the rig and we'd go dive the wellhead it was crazy fun because of the heat and the vibration all this marine life would would be attracted to the sound mm. and and the stuff you'd see down there was great you know you're obviously you're not going to do that now yeah that would be way too dangerous but we used to do it all the time so how do we go from working on rigs written Write a second book to designing and riding bikes. Bikes based on cooking oil. Um, Claire, uh, my wife. Book two had come out and done all right, and then uh, I, I was getting very disillusioned with the industry because I'd met Claire, um, who has. Uh, thinks it Claire is the knit your own muesli hippie earth mother and I am in her eyes a poster boy for earth raping eco vandals you know oil and gas at any cost 
you know. I might as well be throwing fucking kittens in a wood chipper for a job. What do you do? I throw kittens in a wood chipper. You know, that's 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 how she saw me. Yeah. Um, and didn't try to change me, but stuck to her guns about, God, your business is fucked up, you know. And was banging on about plastic in the ocean and sustainability and global warming and all that stuff 15 years ago and, and getting upset about it. Right. So that's Claire. Yeah. And um, we, she had met my crew and uh, was suitably disgusted by them. <laughs> my brothers, she was, I said, they're not normal people. You're yeah. not going to be normal. Um, and, and we were in love and, and, um, I was 35, very much realizing I'm just going to be one of those oil and gas bachelors, you know? Yeah. And, uh, she said to me, if if we're going to stay together, this is like a year into us dating, I guess you'd call it dating because I'd disappear in the rig and come back and, you know. Uh, and we decided to move in together the, the first time I lived with someone, and we did that. And uh, I got this. I got all kinds of awful marriage advice from from my crew because they'd all been through. They're all in their third marriage. Everyone apart from Irwin it was into their third marriage, and so the, the, the marriage advice I was getting was atrocious. <laughs> and I come from a from a broken, a bad broken home, yeah. so I'm very aware of of the ugliness that goes on with separation and what and the trauma. Yeah. Um, to everyone it's like pulling the pin on a grenade fucking everybody gets hit with some of that shrapnel you know and 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 so i was very just very cognizant of of being being properly scared of marriage yes. because um i don't want to repeat i don't want to repeat the sins of the father yeah and i don't want history to be repeated in terms of oil and gas because the only person I'd ever met in my adult life who'd made it work was Irwin. Yeah. And he's a fucking anomaly. Yes. Like we're talking about an on the spectrum. He's off. There. His IQ's over 150. The guy could have done fucking anything he wanted to. But he's also quite mental. So oil and gas was like the perfect balance for uh, financial reward and uh, academia being applied in the field. And there are guys with guns, and we can do whatever we want. Yes, that, so that that's it's got the whole. It's got the whole. Thing. Yeah. So so, and she'd met them over over that twelve months, bit by bit, one one at a time. Someone would be coming through, whatever, and 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 she was she was like, they they're all fucking mad, and and if we're gonna get married and have kids, you need to do something else for a living because it ain't gonna work. And I said, no, it'll work, it'll work, it'll work. She said, no, it won't. Yeah. So that that's where I'm at. Yeah, okay. Mm. And and I, I was madly in love with her. And I knew that I'd never meet anyone like that again. So I shook her hand and I said, okay, okay, I'll... I'll. And I, I didn't like where the industry was going. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think I could just stop working at 35 and live on royalty checks. But the book was doing really well. So there was hope there. But we were living in Sydney and there is no oil and gas in Sydney mm. at all. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll transition into some sort of desk role because I've got twenty over years of field experience. Um, but I, we would have to move somewhere. And Claire was completely—I don't care—anywhere, name it. I'll I'll go yeah. with you. I don't, you know, wherever. So I was starting to think about that stuff, and um, 
And I wanted to write another book, but I didn't have anything to write about because I'd, um, I'd made a promise to Claire that I would do something else. And we were yeah. now talking about getting engaged. Um, so we, we got engaged and we planned our wedding and it was between engagement and wedding. Um, we went out to dinner and she said, um, can we make a baby? I want to be a mum. And, uh, I said, let's buy a dog. <laughs> and if that works out, you know, we'll, we'll get another dog. You know? We'll buy another dog. And, and, um, so I was terrified of that as well. Yes. But, but I said, okay, I, I'd love to be a dad. And, and she was, ve- she's, if she, if she's very open, if there's something she wants to talk about, she will verbalize it straight away. There's, right. there's no bottling it up and thinking about it and choosing a time. Yeah. You it's know, on. it's on. Shit will get off the pot, right? And, and so I was, oh, okay, okay, okay. So we commenced with um, making babies into course. And I thought, I, I, I don't know if my junk works. I've, I've never tried this before. Yeah. I've, I've, never, I've never gotten anybody pregnant or tried. I've always been incredibly careful in my life. Uh, you had to be in oil and gas. Yeah. Um, so first attempt, bang. Kapow. Kapow. And, and I'm in Japan on a land rig up in Hokkaido in the middle of winter. And I'm on the drill floor and it's a blizzard. And uh, the radio operator comes running up to the drill floor doing the pantomime of there's a phone call for you. And, and because I never went near the radio room because it's too frustrating, that means two things. Someone's dead. Yeah. Or there's a, there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, something, something's going on, right? So I run down, take the call. Claire's like, I'm, I'm pregnant, champ. <laughs> this will be your last job then. And I hung the phone up and thought, fuck. I, I, okay. <laughs> okay. okay. What am I going to well, Yeah, exactly. So I got back to Sydney and panicked. At 35, late, I lay in the bed, staring at the ceiling, peeling the onion till late at night. What the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to support yep. my baby, my wife, living in this apartment in Rose Bay? The money was good back then. Uh, what, what am I going to do? I'm a 35-year-old dyslexic man with no other skill sets out of drilling holes in the ground and no education. Mm. Okay, I've written a couple of books that are doing okay, but what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's all I've ever done. It's not like you can slot into some other job that's similar. Mm. What's similar? <laughs> there isn't. Exactly. So I panicked. And... Um, Total synchronicity. I took a phone call on that first rotation back while I was panicking. And it was a guy I hadn't seen in years and years and years from back in the day that worked with my mother. Mm. And he'd had his, he had his own business here in Perth uh, supplying drilling equipment. And he needed someone to be the rental tool manager of all of that downhole directional and, and drill pipe assets that he rents to drilling contractors. Yeah. And I was just stood there on the balcony thinking, this isn't real. Really? And he's like, yeah, can I entice you away from the field? We'll pay for your flights. You know, we'll. So I, you know, I took the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, the universe was good enough to, you know, wave that. Hey, grab this thing. So I did. Yeah. And um, we arrived in Perth and I took the job. And uh, Claire gave birth to Lola here in Perth. 
And um, directly after Lola was born, I, f- I found that, that process extremely difficult because I'd capitulated myself from my crew, my brothers, the guys yeah. I'd worked with, for years. fought with, brawled with, broken shit with. Awesome. Or, you know, you get close, really mm. close. And it didn't help that they would randomly call me up from the radio room and demand that I come back and stop all this pissy ass fucking around having babies and getting married and come back. <laughs> and yeah. come back and, Cheers, and, and I've got this desk job. My first desk job never worked in an office environment. Yeah. My direct report was a woman 10 years younger than me. I, I was so out of my comfort zone. I had to, you know, I'm sat in this, do you know Excel? Are you, you know, I didn't, what? No, computers up to that point in my life had been used for masturbating pretty much and uh, <laughs> sending the odd email. And I'm suddenly in this position where I'm, but what's PowerPoint? What's X? No. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I remember that first week, the guy I sat, who was on my left, he said to me, oh, we're going to load out those drilling jars and we're going to do that sub-assembly and we're all doing, can you, are you doing that? And I just looked him in the eye and said, yeah, I'll take care of it. And he kind of gave me this blank, ambiguous smirk and went, okay, so I'm going to need you to send an email. You know, just confirming that. And I said, well, I'm looking at you. And I said, I'll do it. Yeah. And he went, oh, Paul. It was like a mixture of pity and contempt. He was like, nah, mate, it's, you need to, you know, <laughs> you need to cover your ass. And that was that. It was like a tsunami of realization. I, I sat there in this fucking cubicle in this office just going, oh, no. My word means nothing. Anymore. I, I, how many emails am I going to send over the next 30 years? just to cover someone's incompetence or make sure that I don't get blamed. Oh no, it was like I was just in this dark. I have no control over anything. I'm not in charge of anything. Mm. I'm, I'm reporting to this woman. Old school misogynistic oil and gas kind of. Oh. I'm reporting to a woman, a, a woman younger than me. And it's just a real head check of ego and oneself. And yeah, what have you been doing for the last 20 years? And I was depressed. Oh, I and I'm going back to this uninsulated heat trap in Netherlands that we'd rented at the height of the mining boom. This is 2008 when we got here. And we're, we're handing over over a grand a week for this house. And um, Claire's just given birth to Lola. And I hated my job. You know, and I, I remember that first week having those conversations and that realization. I'm driving a desk now. No more adventures, buddy. You're mowing the lawn on Sunday. You're doing the nappies. This is you now. Middle age fucking bliss. This is you speed ramping into death and taxes. <laughs> you know, when I got married, the, the, the advice I got from Irwin was women need three things to be happy. Security, sex, and shoes, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> that was the oil field advice I got. I'm like, okay, it's a bit more complex than that. And and and, and I remember sitting in the car, and it's it's blazingly hot. It's like a 50 degree yeah. day, and I know that I could hear that I could hear Lola screaming from the car park, from the driveway. Sorry, and the radio's on and the air conditioning's on, and I, I you know I hadn't eaten breakfast or lunch, and I was strung out and hating it, and I just wanted to run. Yeah. I just wanted to go to the airport and find a rig and run. Walk through the front door. I didn't I didn't say what's for dinner or anything. I just looked at Claire and she's got that baby in her lap and she's just sitting there in bra and knickers and sweating through the couch. It was hotter in you know those 
yeah. hotter in the house than it is yeah. outside. And she just looked at me and I said, babe, give me, give me, give me the baby. Go, go and grab a cold shower. And she went, the fucking washing machine's broken. It's fucked. It's leaking and there's, there's foam and shit and it's all gone down in the back of the house and it's wrecked all my stuff. Fix it. <laughs> Fix it now. And I'm like, okay, babe. And I run into the garage. I'm not a fucking washing machine mechanic, but I grabbed a spanner and a, and a, <laughs> and a mini mag light. And I, busy. I've got my, my, you know, my slacks and my work and my tie, like, and the shirt like this one, you know. And I, I go into the laundry and yeah, the washing machine's proper fucked. It's completely just water's just pissing out all over the place. And it was this step down lounge thing and, and it's ruined all this. She'd unpacked to the point where everything was taken out of the boxes and out of the newspaper, all her things, you know, her, her things, her clothes and stuff's all laid out, completely just covered in water and, and dirty water. And, oh, fine. So I, 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 I thought, I'll just deal with it. So I got the washing machine, I pulled it away from the wall, leaned it back on its back two legs and popped a brick under the front, got down in the water, put the mag light in my mouth and slid under the machine, desperately panning around to see if there was something I could do to fix this fucking thing. And it was, it was easy. The drain tube comes out of the drum and then the, the tube goes up into the a bracket and then into the sink yep. where the, where it pumps out. The, yeah. It was blocked and it had come away from the bottom of the drum. There's a little circlip yep. and it just pop, popped, popped off. And I thought, Oh hell, I can actually fix that. So I'm shining the mag like a mag light around with my mouth and I've got the spanner and I'm pulling on the hose. It hadn't completely separated from the circlip and I yanked on it and it came loose with a jolt and said blockage turned out to be a foot long turd of pubic hair and soap Beautiful. that shot into my open waiting mouth, <laughs> which made me go and I drove my head into a bracket next to the drum and, and slashed my head open above my left eyebrow down to bone mm. and there, there's claret squirting out all over the fucking place <laughs> it was like a roman polanski film i was literally red the gt stripes down the front of the white business shirt <laughs> just red it was really you know how your head bleeds yes especially when your blood pressure's up on a hot yeah. day uh, there's claret just going everywhere so I, I came out from under there didn't carry on Went into the laundry toilet and took the bog roll off the little spindly thing and just started wrapping that around my forehead to soak up the blood. Went back under the machine, put the hose back on the, the fitting, put the circlet back on, tested it, and then started mopping up the water. The whole time Lola's screaming in the front room. She wouldn't settle. Mm. She wouldn't feed. She's just fucking screaming. Mm. And my head's thumping. And I go back into the lounge room having fixed everything to announce to my wife that it's all squared away. And she didn't say, hey, why are you wearing a pink turban? Or anything like that. She just said, is it fixed? And I went, yeah, babe. And she nodded. And I said, give me the baby. Go and have a shower. She went, okay. So she hands Lola over. And she's done that mum wrap. You know, the swaddly wrap thing? Yeah. It's like a special wrap where you the hands are put to the side and the blanket sort of is folded over the hand mm -hmm. and then it's crossed across the chest and likewise on the other side. So they're in this sort of mummy wrap thingy. And it's a pink, it's a pink um, little baby blanket. And she hands me my child. And in oil and gas terms, she's like a three and a half inch pup joint. 
So she's about three and a half inch outside circumference. She's about a foot and a half long. She's pink and cylindrical. And out the end is a bulbous, purple, veiny head. And in times of extreme duress, I make bad visual jokes. It's a coping mechanism. So I thought, that looks a bit like an erect cock. (laughs) And I grabbed my, my baby. I ran into the study. I tucked her feet into my fly. And drew a jap eye on the top of her head with a with a felt tip pen and ran back into the lounge room going, Look at that! Look at the size of that! Woohoo! Get the camera! Get the fucking camera! And 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 Claire, man, she disconnected at a level I, I never thought was you know when women like in a car accident, they'll pick a fucking car up to save a kid? That's what she did to me. I remember the coffee table just flipping through the air like it was made of tissue paper. And this fucking woman, five foot two, oh my god. She kicked the shit out of me. She pulled Lola out of my crotch. What's wrong with you? I was just this fetal, balled up thing on the floor. And she ran down the hallway with the baby. And I picked myself up and thought, wow, that's a dumb thing to do. And sat down on the couch and nervously channel surfing. She comes out of the bathroom 20 minutes later. And she's at that scary calm. Baby's asleep. She put the baby down. She's dressed nicely. It's really good. She walked down the hallway. She sat down next to me and she looked at me and her voice went down a couple of octaves. I was so scared. And she just said, honey, never make cock jokes using your daughter as a prop. And I was like, okay, 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 babe. That was, that was week one of uh, new father, new job, new city, new life. Yeah, I learned a lot from my wife. And to answer your question, a few months later, I decided I need to write a fucking book because I can't do this shit. It's going to make me crazy. Yeah. And I announced to her, I'm going to ride my bike around Australia because my publisher said, do what you know. Yeah. Write what you love. Write what you cannot live without. Motorcycles. Since I watched The Great Escape at the age of five. Yes. That's me, right? Bikes, 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 bikes. So Claire looked at me and she said, really? There's probably a hundred Muppets doing that right now. You need to make it different. And I said, how am I going to do that? And she said, you're the earth-raping eco-vandal poster boy for hydrocarbons and fucking up the planet. Why don't you set an example and do it on something that's environmentally friendly? You know, this is in 2011. So, I don't know, is there an electric bike? And at the time there wasn't. Or is there an alternate fuel bike you could use? No. And I did six months of research and there isn't. Or... There wasn't at the time. And moreover, my publisher loved the idea of it, but I needed to do it on something that was compliance-plated. Yeah. I.e. allowed to be ridden on Australian roads and therefore insurable. Mm. And it did not exist. It didn't exist. So I had to set about making it exist. And that became an obsession and eventually got there. And um, very luckily uh, uh, met um, the professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Adelaide, a guy called Colin Castell. And uh, he was incredibly good and um, was happy to, 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 to do it with me. Then the money to make it work uh, came from oil and gas. And right. that, that was one of the best experiences I've had with, with big oil because of the first two books I got the face time at the right level with big entities. And, and I, you know, signed some books for their board of directors and, and then they were kind of a bit mystified on why I was there. <laughs> and I launched into my pitch. Well, I want you to give me money. 
so that I can ride a bike around Australia for charity that runs on straight-used cooking oil. <laughs> Looks I got would just kind of what? But hang on, um, yeah, we're you know, we'll happily throw school children into a into a mulcher if we think fucking hydrocarbons are going to come out. Why the fuck would we give you money so you can <laughs> what? Have you had an aneurysm? You know, Paul, what? And I'm like, no, no, no. And I had to say them. But it's about the suspension of disbelief that you do give a shit. Yeah. Because, you know, take company X. They spend $2 million a year putting two-page ads into big, glossy magazines like National Geographic, showcasing their environmental fuel products. I'm asking for a fraction of that. And I'll say nice things about you guys. And it'll be a, it'll be a novel that'll be in print globally for at least a decade. That's a lot of free advertising, and there's nothing like a third-party endorsement from a fellow earth-raping eco-vandal like me. Mm. And they got it that fast. Okay, <clears throat> so I gave the university the money, made the bike, got the bike, got it registered, got it compliance-plated, and rode around Australia on 600 litres of used cooking oil. Was it a good laugh? It was epic. And the maths was fascinating. Colin, Colin was just throwing numbers at me like, do you know if we just took what KFC chuck into landfill in New South Wales a year, you could run all of Sydney's public transport on free fuel and produce 70% less carbon emissions? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Now, the gov- government will never go for it. It's <clears throat> the fuel tax revenue, man. Hmm. I mean, go for it and tax it in some other fashion. At least you're doing something good for the environment. Um, all of the farming communities I rode through, because it, it smelled like fish and chips, a very <laughs> strong smell of fish and chips. And it looked odd. It sounded odd. Yeah. And I'd pull up at, you know, Dolby, rural Queensland, and, and a guy would walk up to me. And it was like we were doing a drug deal or something. He'd walk up to me and say, is that it? Hey, mate, does that thing run on? I'm like, why are we whispering? <laughs> yeah. Oh, just running on cooking oil. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got a couple of ag bikes on my property. I, I, run, them on, um, I run them on cooking oil. I get it from the roadhouse. And I'm like, mate, why are you fucking whispering? <laughs> oh, well, if, the, if, the, if I get caught, I get a $200,000 fine. That's what the government does. Yeah. The ag bike, not for road use, for the dude to use on his property, to ride around his property. Loads of guys are converting conventional bikes to run on used cooking oil, and they work, and they run them. But if they get caught, man, they get fined. Yeah. So, you know, I used to have faith in the system of government. I used to have faith (sighs) in the hierarchy. And no, it's all nefarious and corrupt and, and laughable. Unbelievably laughable. So the project worked and the oil and gas companies were happy with the book and with the, the, book, did um, well. the book did well and, and, and with the, 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 what came back to them. And uh, two years later, they said, can we do it again? Uh, you know, yo. So I rang Colin and I said, what have we, I can get more you know, money from these. Because the kids, the, the, the kids, the, the, the mechanical engineering students were given carte blanche. Yeah, and a massive, but yeah, I mean, how, how awesome. And they were, they were great. <clears throat> awesome experience. And so he, came, he said straight away, well, we've done longevity. Let's do speed. Let's see how fast we can make a bike go on used cooking. Okay. 
Oh. And, and so that was it. Then we were going to go and get the land speed record on used cooking oil. And that was a three-year build. And, uh, you know, awesome. Mm. Uh, awesome experience. What were you doing to put bread on the table during that time? Working. Working. Working in oil and gas behind right. a desk. Still. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And so what happened with the, the land speed? Uh, we built the bike over the three-year window. Uh, we uh, took it to a dry salt lake, Lake Gierna, where they have an event once a year called Speed Week, uh, which is just like the Bonneville, mm. uh, the salt flats in Bonneville in America. It's the same timing system. It's actually the salt here is when it's when it's perfect conditions. Sometimes Lake Gierna turns back into a lake, but when it's not a lake, it's actually flatter and better than than Bonneville is for for, for setting speed records. Right. It's a crazy place. It's just crazy. Um, so, on the on the you have to pack very carefully because it's it's a long drive out there in the desert, and there is no infrastructure to rely on. So you yeah. need to bring every piece of kit that you could possibly think of. <clears throat> and that year, there were four hundred nutters on the salt, guys on bikes and and driving cars that they built in the shed back home. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And they're doing, they're doing 400 kilometers an hour on a thing that they built in the back shed that's running on nitrous oxide and, and proper nutters, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but fun. Just, it was like a Mad Max film. It was just so much fun. So we took the bike. We'd done all the speed testing on a Nissan test track in South Australia that we got access to. And we tested the high-speed capability on an airport runway in Albury-Wodonga and knew the bike could do 300 kilometers an hour over. Yeah. Um, so it had power. It was th uh, three and a half meters long, one meter wide. It weighed half a ton, and it was a, it was a streamliner. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, a, like a rocket. You lay on it. Right. Um, yeah, awesome. It was just awesome. So we, we towed it out there onto the salt, and um, I fell off and broke my back in two places. Um, but... I got the Aussie record. I didn't get up to uh, to the world record because I, I had a get off. But we 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 got an Australian record, and I went to the hospital. And uh, you know it was good Pilates. There's me and a whole bunch of pregnant ladies. Pilates. Get your get your back get your back working again. Uh, and that book came out. The best part about that whole experience was. Um, in, in the last six months leading up to Speed Week, I porked up a bit. <laughs> right. And Colin's on the phone and he said, now he's going through the checklist. You got there, it's a big checklist. Yeah. You got that, you got that, yeah, you got that, yeah. How much do you weigh? So I haven't weighed myself for a while. How much do you weigh, Paul? I told him and he went, hey, oh, and he does the maths in his head. You can hear the wheels turning over the phone. He's like, you're going to lose 22.7 kilometers an hour. and You need to drop some weight, man. I'm like, but, uh, but, but. I like, saw the heels off your boots. Do a big poop. Don't eat breakfast. <laughs> All that stuff. Get your sweat on. Get your sweat on. Go for a run. I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake. So I had that phone call with him in the next day. <clears throat> I'm riding down uh, Albany Highway. Yeah. Was it Albany High? Anyway, there's a, there's a shop called the Helmet House, and I'm poodling along on my bike, and I look over to my left, and there's this there's this lid in the window, 
this carbon fiber helmet. So I grabbed the brakes, jumped in. Show me that helmet. And I, I, it was, it was, there's no weight to this lid at all. It was like, yeah. it was like putting on a baseball cap. It was like sticking your head into a Bentley's glove box. It was just this $1,500 carbon fiber. You know, if Darth Vader rode a motorbike, he'd be wearing that helmet. So I immediately bought it and got bollocked because you need a $1,500 helmet. Haven't, aren't they enough? You know? And, um, that was my weight saving there. So I called Colin and said, this is my weight now because I bought this helmet. That's, he went, Oh, well done. Okay. So a couple of days later, I'm packing for the salt and I've got, I'm in this room. I'm at this garage and I've got these two giant grip bags and I'm carefully putting everything into the bag and ticking off the checklist. And Sydney, my son is, is in there with me. This is why I've got this floor in here because it's Sid proof. Yeah. He can face plant and bash tools on the ground and not just just, rubber. So the whole floor is rubber. And so it's the boys in there, Sid's in there with me, you know, being Sid. And he's at that point where he was transitioning from pull-ups to potty. <laughs> and I just watched that kid neck his own body weight in mum's spaghetti sauce. And then I took a $1,500 carbon fiber motorcycle helmet, put it down in front of a nest of leathers, inverted in front of him, and then I turned my back. What an idiot. <laughs> I'm looking for disposable batteries or something. And I just heard this <gasps> and it all came together in my brain. I thought, Oh no, and I turned around and he's just stepped out of his pull-ups and he's sitting on this helmet, taking the dump of his life. <laughs> Your helmet. Hello daddy. In my helmet. And I, I, I yelled, I was like, no. And Claire opened the door and went, <laughs> and she picked the boy up laughing. And there's King Kong's finger curled up in this helmet. <laughs> Oh my God, I was, couldn't believe that came out of that baby. Great. I was like, fantastic. So I tipped it in the loo and spent the rest of the evening ripping the liner out of this helmet and scrubbing it in the laundry sink. <laughs> Put it on the next day because Erwin wanted to see the magic $1,500 helmet. So I thought it'll be a good test. I'll ride, I'll ride over to his place wearing it and see if I can cope with the smell. Well, I I fucking couldn't, could I? I got about halfway there, pulled into a gas station and bought four of those magic trees and shoved them up (laughs) between the the liner and the helmet. And it just smelled like a jobby in a pine forest, right? (laughs) So I got to his place, parked the bike, took the lid off and put it on the ground in front of me, inverted again by the front wheel. And he's walking down the three steps to his front door with a cup of coffee. And I'm walking towards him to hug him. And he said, is that the lid? And I went, yeah. And he went, pity. I said, why is that? He said, the dog's pissing in it. I turned around and he's got this German shepherd that's oh. just going, oh, oh. I think it was an olfactory trigger with the dog, but he, he kind of, he filled it up with German shepherd piss. <laughs> that was it. It went in the bin. Yeah. Things have been shattered and pissed in. Yeah. Yep. But I turned up at the salt with the other helmet and fell off anyway. So, yeah. So what's Paul doing now? Uh, painting. Yeah. How did that come about? I had a plan for book five. Yep. And it was it was a cunning plan. <laughs> so cunning. You could put a tail on it and call it a weasel, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it, yeah. Okay, I'll think of another. It was so cunning. You could nail it to a hippie and throw it over a rainbow. Oh, right. <laughs> 
Uh, and it involved um, a motorcycle travel adventure again. Because you write what you love and you write what you know. 100%. And my publisher said, oh, for fuck's sake, another book about bikes. It's been done to a death. Okay, you were lucky with the first one. Um, the second bike book did okay. But leave it alone, you know. You and McGregor and Charlie Borman have done it. Everybody's yeah. done it. Everybody has done it. Stop doing motorcycle books. And I said, aha, but I've got something original that no one's done. And they said, go on. And I told them. And they went, fuck yeah. Do it. And that involved... Um, when I worked in Japan, I was asked to uh, deliver a keynote to a Japanese oil and gas multinational, which I did. And then, um, I don't know if you've ever done business with the Japanese or, or been over there. So there, there's a, there's, there, it's very um, structured and yeah. very systematic. And you go through the formalities and you go through the, the structured components of doing business with them. And if it goes well, if you kick a goal, then you have the party. And the party is full of the sort of medieval farmyard malviolence that you would expect to be on the same level as all the structured serious stuff. They're, they're equal and opposite at the same time. So we did all the structured stuff and then the kickoff mentalness at the end was really, really good fun. <laughs> and I find myself in a karaoke bar in Tokyo with a seat cushion <laughs> shoved up my shirt doing the bloated near-death version of Elvis's My Way. Yeah. And uh, it was just good fun. You know, it was just, you know, the whole, that's with the with the belching and everything. Lovely. And all that stuff. And it was funny. Fun, 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 fun. And I met the big boss. And he was laughing. He thought that was, he, he thought that was really funny. He was clapping like a, like a Japanese schoolgirl in a Hello Kitty store at my near-death yeah. Elvis impersonation. He's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I sat down next to him. We start talking. And that's where the idea was hatched because he has an exotic pet, which is considered, you know, in 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 Japan, especially in Tokyo. If you if you have an exotic pet, it's a it's a it's a status symbol. Yes. This gentleman's got a thirteen year old adult male chimp called Jocko, who used to work in a circus, and he can ride a Pee Wee fifty, and do monos. So I'm talking to this guy, and he's got a chimp at home that's got his own entire compound and he rides around the backyard on a peewee 50 doing wheelies and shows me video of this on his phone. And I'm like, I, 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 I can I meet him? And he went, yeah, come around to the house tomorrow. You, you and Jocko can hang out. Now, when's that going to happen in your life? Not if you do or don't know, I have a bad history with primates. Right. Um, cause I had a monkey for three years and, and, Joe, a spider monkey, right, and and he died. He had a a, a bad death, and and that really bugged me because you get attached to your pets, right? Yeah. Imagine having a pet that's got opposing thumbs. You know, everywhere you go, he goes because the monkey chooses the man, not the other way around. And mm. and I was chosen by the spider monkey, and that was it. Everywhere I went for three years, I had this fucking monkey around my neck. So the opportunity to meet <clears throat> a larger primate. Like Jocko was, wow, you know. I'd seen orangutans in Brunei. There were some fires that came through the rainforest uh, in the three-year window mm -hmm. that I was there and everybody got evacuated out of Koala Belight. It was, there was really bad. We got these crazy sunsets in, on the uh, east coast of Australia from all of the ash 
yeah. that went in, uh, into the upper atmosphere. That was Brunei burning. So sad. Yes. Um, and the primates that, that passed through are orangs are solitary creatures. And I remember going to the, uh, the center where they put them all and it was just, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Two dozen orangutans in a compound just hanging out, just hanging out with burnt feet. And uh, it was just magical, right? Just to yeah. go and, yeah. you know, go and say hi and hear some bananas, you know? Yeah. Um, it was really funny watching them react to a mirror because these are wild creatures. And, yeah. and the, the lady that was running the place walked into the compound and said, watch this. And she had a, a mirror with a blanket over it and she took the blanket away. And they formed a queue based on age to wow. have a look at all the bits of their body that they couldn't contort themselves in to look at without a mirror. So everybody went to the butt straight away and had a good look at their butthole. And let's think about it, right? If you've gotten to middle age, yeah. you're gonna be curious about what your butthole looks like. So, so they all just sort of looked at their armpits and tongues and it was, you know, like you do. Um, so I've gone way off topic. J uh, Jocko, so I get, to, I get to this gentleman's place and it's palatial and huge. Jocko's punching a dart out the back. And, uh, and we got along very well. Yeah. And I just came out and said it. And I, I said, can I please take him on a bike adventure around Japan? And he went, yeah, sure, Paul. So then I wrote to the Japanese Roads and Traffic Authority. And believe me, it's the only country in the world where you can do something that idiotic and, and, and they'll let you do it. So I was going to ride a Russian Ural which is a motorcycle with a sidecar. The mm -hmm. sidecar wheel is also driven. I was going to ride that bike around all three Japanese islands with a 13-year-old adult male chimp in the sidecar, and we would have adventures. <laughs> and SBS were, were lined up to film it for a series. Yeah. And it was all set to go, and I got the bike, and I had the bike retrofitted with a special seat and four-point harness and helmet for Jocko, and we'd been practicing, and he was totally, you know... 5Ks down the road, he was already in that sidecar, just asleep, just dick watching, just fast asleep with a, yeah. like a sliver of drool connecting his bottom lip to his crotch. <laughs> just fast asleep in the, I'm bombing around, yeah. loving it, right? And then he'd wake up, have a drink of water, wave at people. Uh, it would, how much fun, right? How much yeah, fun yeah. would that be? And then he fucking died. Oh. So I was broken hearted again. And, um, <clears throat> Mono chucking, bike riding, pack a day, beer drinking, chimps don't grow on trees. <laughs> so I was stumped on what am I going to do? I've got nothing to talk about. I have to have an adventure yeah. and meet the people and then write about it. Yes. I, I don't do fiction. Yes. Do, my publisher said, just write an, just write an adventure, you know, just write an adventure novel. Nah. No, no, I need to have the visceral. Mm -hmm. I need to have the contact and, and look at the people and have the, yeah. Um, so I, I, I decided um, I, need, I need a creative outlet or I will go crazy. Suburban Bliss is a cage with massive golden bars. And I, I, there's no more running off, you know. Uh, you know what a, uh, book two was, was, well, let's go and do that thing in Afghanistan. And that was that upset Claire because I, I went off to Afghanistan for a month, about a week after Anaconda finished, and and came back. 
but I, I'm glad I did it. Mm. Um, so, so those those I can't scratch those itches anymore. Mm. So you still have the itches all the time. I've got a hundred things I want to go off and do. I just can't, you know, mm. fuck off and, and go and do it. It's the inner journey, the raising of the children, and the and the uh, that stuff. So yeah. I've got it's internalized to a point now that is I, that where the art comes from? Yes, yeah. I need to express. I need to express. And a mate of mine, an ex um, Air Force pilot, Chris Bacusis, an awesome guy. I met him in Afghanistan uh, because. Um, oh God, it's a long story. Uh, there was a think tank I was involved with where government was discussing oil infrastructure, wars for oil. Yeah. And um, I wanted to write about that because I had access. Uh, what I didn't want to do was go to a part of the world like that with no trigger time or skill sets from a military perspective. But I know people that do because we would engage PMCs to look after us all the time. Yeah. So I went to um, I went to Christian Durant, uh, who who uh, had a PMC, and Chris was involved in that business, and some other um, SAS men from Perth, and so I met all those guys, and they had a contract with the UN in Kabul at the time, and I asked them very politely if I could go in country, not as a as a writer because you're immediately capitulated, no one's gonna to talk to you. I wanted to embed myself as, as, as one of those and just move around and observe. And they said, okay. Um, so it was about a week after our wedding that, that my opportunity came up for me to go in. Mm -hmm. Not when it was a war, but just at the end. Um, and so I, I rocked up there and uh, saw some really wild stuff and uh, that's how I met um, Chris Bacusis. And, and years later now, um, Chris uh, bought into a hotel in Perth that had just been built called, um, it's on uh, uh, Wellington, Wellington Street in the city called the Peppers Hotel. Right. It's opposite the Shell Building. And they just, he was here for the fit out and um, he... He asked me to do a painting. I used to paint just as a bit of a release and a hobby when I was on the rigs, back mm. when I knew Chris. But just little things in, in my garage, just, just amusements, you know. Yeah. And he always liked them. And he said, do a painting for our lobby. It just came out of the blue. He just asked me. Yeah. Because he was around the house for dinner. Do you still paint, Paul? I mean, this was 15 years. I'm, no. Just used to muck about, you know. He's go on, do a painting for the lobby. It's like, No. And he, he was like a fucking dog with a bone. Yeah, like a yeah, like a dog with a like a retired greyhound with a stuffed rabbit. He wouldn't fucking <laughs> let it go. He'd ring me up, do the painting, you know, text me, yeah. do the painting, do the painting, do the painting, just relentlessly. And it was December, the middle of December, two thousand and sixteen. He he was back in Perth, and he rang me up, do the painting. I was oh for fuck's okay, I'll yep, I'll do it. Fucking do it. Begrudgingly went down, bought a canvas, acrylics. And I rang him back and said, I get to paint whatever I fucking want. You can put it in your hotel lobby. Yeah. It's a Paul Carter original. And he said, just make it tasteful. And I said, I'm not doing some still life composition or a landscape. Yeah. I'm going to do... Um, I'm going to do a motorcycle, Chris. And he said, yeah, fine, whatever. So I painted that. Right. 
that's a print the originals yeah yeah in the hotel and um so he did he put that painting in the in the hotel lobby and then two weeks later i get a phone call from another hotelier you the guy that did the painting in the peppers yeah oh we want one for the bar in our hotel okay what do you charge so i pulled this figure out your wild ass number out of my bottom and he went oh uh, yeah okay <laughs> so I, I did a big massive picture of steve mcqueen in a porsche and yeah they, they and then oh you do commissions and then a guy called me and said well i'd like one of my wife <laughs> so i painted this guy's wife and then and i i got i got i really loved it yeah and then i kept going nights weekends um, two years later, I had an exhibition in sit because I'd accumulated enough to have an exhibition, and it was synchronicity again. Luck. Uh, Sue Hines, the trade publishing director at Allen and Unwin, the lady yeah. that took a punt on me all those years, years ago, ago, rang me up and said, "Paul, I'm retiring. I'm 65. I'm going to knock it on the head." Lovely woman, and I said, "Oh, Sue, um, can I gift you a painting as a thank you?" And she went, "Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd love a painting." I said, "I'll send you a." A list, you choose whatever one you want. It's yours. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So a couple of weeks go by, she writes back, she goes, I like this one. Great. So I pack it off and I, I, I send it to Alan and Unwin. And she opens it up at work on her last day. And um, all of her colleagues loved it too. So she put it in their boardroom and said, I'll leave it here. And hung it in the boardroom and Sue retired. And her... Um, the, 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 the gentleman uh, hired to replace Sue post-acquisition by uh, Murdoch Media yep. was a man called uh, t- uh, Tom Gilliard. Uh, 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 he came in yep. and uh, loved the painting and um, took a picture of it on his phone. A couple of weeks after that, it was the Sydney Writers' Festival. And of course, Tom's attending... He would have been to a lot of these functions. And, um, you know, after the hors d'oeuvres are, are done and the mains are done, he went for a bit of a walk around the block and it was in a hotel in the middle of Sydney, financial district. And uh, next door to the hotel is a gallery called Wentworth Galleries, a high-end gallery opposite the Sydney Stock Exchange. And they were having a red carpet event. And he... Tom's like Roger Moore in a dinner suit, right? So he blags right. his way into this thing. And he's smashing a crystal and eating a canapé and looking at some classic painting. And the yeah. owner of the gallery pings him as not being on the list and doesn't recognize him. He's like, but I'm Tom. <laughs> you know? yeah, I'm Tom. I'm Tom. And they fall into conversation, which turns to authors who paint. And Tom said, you know, I, I, I only think that I think there's only two at Allen and Unwin. And she said, well, who are they? He said, Arn Go. And a guy called Paul Carter. And she went, oh, the oil rig guy. And he's like, <laughs> really? And she went, well, I don't know his books, but my husband does. And, and I don't get any sleep because there's a lot of laughing in bed at night if, he, if he's reading one of Paul's books. He paints. And Tom pulls Jeez. his phone out. And then I get a phone call from her. Would you like to exhibit with Wentworths? What? So I shipped all the art over there and did okay. Uh, came back home, painted some more, had one at Linton and Kay in West Perth in March of this year. Yep. Sold out on opening night. Every piece went on opening night. 
so I continued painting and now there's exhibition three is back over in Sydney next week, Thursday, the 21st at Audrey Fine Art in Piemont. 15 pieces. Um, uh, apparently my, my, apparently my junk falls into a category called neo-noir pop surrealism. I don't, okay. don't know what that means, but there's, I can show you some if you like. Hmm. So that's, Painting. Right I love, love the, love the, love the, uh, lo- and I'm doing lots of complex collages. I did a snake that's about five by four feet, the canvas dimensions, and the snake is coiled in, in space. Uh, and all of the scales are Fender guitar picks. There's 587 Fender guitar picks individually cut, painted, and stuck on the canvas as scales. And, and it worked, I think it worked really well. Yeah. I wanted to use um, used. I wanted to use uh, thrown away picks, um, but I don't know enough musicians to make that happen. <laughs> and I did a collage of book matches. Uh, Two thousand seven hundred and fifty-six nineteen seventies strip club book matches. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, and that was hard to do. Yeah. No, I didn't obviously didn't get them myself. I, I got I got them from some person that collected them. Yeah. So I'm doing I'm doing a lot of collage stuff. Yeah. It's quite a variety of stuff you've been up to in your time. Yeah. Do you ever stop and think about it all? Only only that um only only that my, my most important my, my my biggest asset is time. How do you mean? Time. Don't waste it. Don't don't time is the is, is it's not about anything other than time. Not money or stuff or it's all stuff. It's just stuff. It doesn't matter. If it's something nice it goes to someone else when you pop off and they have it for a bit and then they give it you know, it doesn't matter. It's just making sure that uh that I give the kids uh, a good start mm. and I have some kind of role out for Claire and I that's not burdening them in any way and everything else is just faff white noise go away yeah um, that, that's, that, it's that simple so it's about time using your time not wasting a day yeah so, so I, I cram as much in as I possibly can um, that doesn't involve going away and having an adventure. That's all hedonistic and about my own pursuits. Um, mm. I, I realise that now. I mean, I, it, 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 I, I'm only just starting to learn that at fifty. So, so yeah. I, I understand uh, what, what, what. I mean, look, they say that you're remembered for three generations at best. So, uh, legacy isn't something that's, that's you know doesn't matter mm. just make sure that whatever world that uh, Sydney and Lola inherit <clears throat> is is at least as, as safe and as good as I can make it before I go mm. I think if they grow and have kids if we don't bigger picture stuff it's going to get really ugly the mass extinction event you know horrible wars for water and oil you know it's just it's all going in this spiraling horrible direction oh god 
Yeah, that bugs me. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's just it's just time. So I I'll cram more in if I if I can. Um, but often I don't sleep. Uh, I four to five hours a night. I'm I'm in here usually till one two in the morning painting. Yeah, listening to music, and then get up and do my job job, and uh, just keep going right. What's it like living with Paul? <laughs> That's a pity Claire's not here. <laughs> she would answer that question through the medium of expressive mime. Which is not, which is not good for an audio only podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so you have to imagine that she'd give you a paper cut and uh, and pour lemon juice on it, and, and, right? And hit you with a blunt object, and right. Uh, she, no, nah, it's not. It's not, I'm not complex, mate. Humor's humor's the most important thing in this family. Yes, and she's she'll crack me up. I'll cry. She'll be telling me a story, and I'm crying. She's Good. got an epic sense of humor, you know. I think that's really important. People take themselves so seriously. Oh my god, so seriously. And the what f- it's it's those base things that figure most largely in her values in her value system. So she's uncluttered with all of that stuff. Yeah. She's very direct. And and you, you know, I'll know what she's thinking. She doesn't tiptoe. It's yeah, she's and that, she's yeah. epically funny, very direct, and I, I love that. Mm. Yeah. So there's no grey area uh, around anything. Um, mm. I get the impression you kind of need that. Yeah, she's, she's just great fun. She's, just, you know, she doesn't. She's not a demanding person by any stretch. She's incredibly giving, mm. massively patient. Yeah. Mm. What do the next couple of years look like? Plans, projects? Uh, well, Lola's about to start high school. And I'm sure that's going to get interesting and complex. Um, Sydney's still got a couple of years to go of primary school. And they're getting into sport. They're, they're at that stage where, you know, there's there's tennis and there's yoga and there's um, Pilates and, and uh, there's art classes that Lola's like me she's really into um using her hands and creating things sydney's a bit more academic he's much more of a thinker lola's just a spontaneous you know jump off the cliff now and fuck the consequences right he's not mm. um so i'm getting a lot of fun out of the kids at the minute sydney particularly because he's starting to ask those questions that boys tend to imprint on on the male at around his age, sort of six, somewhere between six and eight, they sort of poof the questions. Why is the, you know, why do women have secrets? Why is the sky blue, dad? Why, what happens if I do this? You know, working it out. Yeah, to working it out. So I'm loving that, that stuff. Let's make something and let's, let's, let's do that thing. And, and he's into it. You know, he, yeah. But I love the way he processes. He's very, he compartmentalizes things. Yes. In a really lovely way, whereas Lola will just go, you know. If I want to do something creative with her, it's like Walt Disney exploded in in my garage. It, she'll she'll just let her off the chain. She'll go nuts. <laughs> so there's we do a lot of that, you know. So I mean, they fill your time. My goodness. Yes. And the homework. Hmm. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. Claire. Um, Claire gives a lot of time up for various causes. 
she's leaving gosh she's leaving next week to go to Cambodia to to um, to um, build a straw thatch hut in the jungle that pumps water from one straw thatch hut to another one like mm. that so she's going to go off and do that so I'll uh, I'll be running around juggling full time job school drop off and, and I'll paint late into the night because I can't sleep when she's not here I just can't so I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit cooked when she gets back. Um, yeah. Mm. So there's, it's just it's just all very much, uh, you know, you, you tend to focus on on the family. So there are fellas I'd love to hang out with. You know, Irwin's retired and lives in Perth. I don't see him anywhere near as much as I'd like to. Um, I've got a really small group of mates that I don't get to see as much as I'd like to. Because I don't really, we don't really go out a great deal. We'll have we'll have date nights and we'll go out and we'll do things together, but 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 sort of hanging out with the boys or going for a ride or I haven't done much of that at all in the last few years. Hmm. There's no time. Um, yeah, so it'll probably just be more of the same, I'd imagine. You know, I'd love to have another adventure and go off and do something, but but i don't think anything's going to happen there was a really wonderful project that that came at me and it fell over and i got excited got really excited there was a national geographic um had a series on television gosh that was four years ago called life on the edge yes uh and they asked me would i like to be one of the presenters and i said yeah of course i would well we'd like to ask you to come and audition so i went and um, I had to tell them that my literacy skills are so appalling, I'm going to struggle to read an auto cue because it'll come out the wrong way. You know, I'll be stood there in front of the camera going, oh, the potato was on the suitcase. You know, it'll just come out wrong. And, and this is a program, uh, a seven one-hour eps on the history of Australia. So yeah. there's Aboriginal words, names of places, people, yeah. regions, and... Dutch and Portuguese ship names, captains. Na- oh my God! You, you know, I couldn't. I had to. So I they hired me, but I had to take the script. It was heavily scripted, and I had to memorize that script right. absolutely verbatim. Um, otherwise, I would bollocks it up. It would be take fifteen. Paul can't get his. Uh, you know, he can't read the auto cue. So I had to. It was a lot of work, homework, learning the script. Yep. But that worked well for the crew because I turned up and, and they'd have like, there'd be yeah. 10, 10 scripts on set, you know. I said, oh, no, I don't need to look at that. <laughs> and they thought, how arrogant is this wanker? He memorized the script. And I, and I would say, yes, I had to. I'm dyslexic. I can't read the audio cue. Oh, oh okay. So I, I learned very quickly uh, that the, the working in a small team yes. in a remote place, I've been doing that shit all my life. So the, the crew, uh, I got a massive kick out of the crew because they didn't have to help me with the script yep. because I'd memorized it. And I would help them. The, you know, Traditionally, the talent get put in a deck chair and there's a runner. Would you like? What do you, what do you need? Yeah. What do you need? Monte, You're involved. You, you would just sit down there and say, I want a Monte Cristo number five and a flat white, my good man. You know, <laughs> and run off and... <laughs> Whatever, you know, but, but I never did that. I, I straight in with the lighting, camera gear, 
dolly stuff, all the little train tracky things and the steady cam rig and help, help, help. And yeah. as a result, we would finish two hours earlier. And then we would commence with drinking and storytelling. <laughs> and, they, and they were great fun. Yes. They're all experienced uh, Nat Geo. You can imagine what these people are like. Fuck, yeah, they were yeah. all up Everest two years earlier. And they're fit. Like, fit. Some of the, one of the camera guys, particularly this German guy, my God, he had like muscles in his shit. He was so fit. He was like, yeah, Paul, yeah, yeah, we go hard. <laughs> okay, Yuli. Yeah, no problem, man. And we do. <laughs> You know, can you climb up that tree and, yeah, well, I'll do it, I'll do it. And the director, they had two directors. One guy was just lovely from Fremantle. A guy called Elliot Bucken. I yeah. would have done anything for Elliot. We could have done a 16-hour day, you know, all over the desert, I don't know, down a mine, somewhere. They had a submarine, you know, they, they, it was a good budget. Yeah, yeah. And he could say to me at the end of all of that, hey, hey, uh, Paul, can I get you to just go ahead and, and, and roll around on the fire? Could you do I'd be like, yeah, sure, Elliot, shirt on, off, what, front, face first? <laughs> I would have done it. Yeah. I would have done it for him. The other guy, um, I hated him. Yeah. Everything about him made my skin crawl, mm. right? And, and we ended up becoming mates. Yeah. But that's only after he was doing a chopper shot and the chopper went in up in Darwin. They were doing this low-level pass, uh, going past a wreck and... Uh, it's a classic pilot error. The guy just banked hard and went <laughs> and put the chopper in the water. Proper ditching, like scary. Yeah. And everybody got out. And uh, this guy, after that, his whole attitude changed. Changed, yeah. yeah. And I was I was like, you've been in a ditching and you didn't die. Come here. You know? <laughs> ah, I love this guy, you know. But it was funny at the end of... Well, what happened to that project? Oh, they, they shot the whole thing. Um, 13 months of filming. It was on telly, Channel 7, played it like four or five times. It went on the Nat Geo channel, ran for a couple of years. Mm. Um, yeah, went out on DVD. I, I don't know, uh, I don't think it's still being screened, mm. but it was enormous fun. Yeah. National Geographic, or, or everything that you would imagine it that, that it would be like to work on a, a project, a big project like that. Mm. Uh, to, yeah, enormous fun. Because their crews are so fine-tuned at what they do for a living, um, much like your earlier days. Yeah, and and if and if you you realise you have a high expectation and and match it uh, from what they want from you as talent, and if you just muck in, do the job, and all the rest of it, then then the you and the crew have this really awesome time working together. As opposed to, oh, we need to set up the next shot. It's going to take you know, 40 minutes, plus we have to wait for the light and all the rest of it. I'm not going to go mince off and demand a flat white. I'm, I'm going to help them set mm. it up. So and I, I really, I learned a lot about cameras and, and gear and mm. and you know, the, all of the, the lens choices and, and lighting choices that are so paramount to capturing whatever it is that you're trying to capture. Much to my detriment, we had one episode that very close to being killed, that very close to being killed. Right. Yeah, that was scary. And it happened really quickly too. And uh, I'll never forget that. That was properly... Ooh. Oh. Yeah. When the weather when the weather girl does the weather now, I can't look at that map of 
the west coast of Australia without seeing Dirk Hartog Island and feeling feeling a little bit sick. Right. It's this banana shaped island off the coast of the middle of WA, near Denham. Yes. You been there? No, but I know where it is. You know where it is, right? Okay, so Dirk Hartog in sixteen sixteen, with the commerce of the day, everybody would come around the Cape, heading roughly towards Australia and turn left. Lots of guys turned left too late, and they're all the wrecks that are up and down the coast. Old Dirk pulled up short enough and thought, Oh, that's the big weird one that we don't know anything about. Let's let's row ashore and have a look. So they rowed ashore and he went, wow, this is really inhospitable. We can't grow anything here. Let's fuck off. But before he left, he climbed the 200-foot limestone cliffs at the northern end and battered a mast into a crevice at the top of the rocks. And to that, he nailed a pewter plate and wrote the 1616 equivalent of Dirk was here. Yeah. That's now sitting in the National Maritime Museum and represents our earliest European artifact. So naturally, Nat, Nat Geo said, well, we have to do a piece on that northern tip of Dirk Hartog about the plate mm. blah, 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 and all the history. Yeah. And they, they have a whole research folder of stuff that you need to learn. And it's scripted. Yeah. So the, so the process was going to be a light aircraft and then a chopper. And then they put the helo down. Everybody debusses. We do the scene. We're back in time for tea and medals. And then, then that Geonis kicked in and they went, nah, let's, let's drive. Let's rent four-wheel drives and let's drive. Yeah. Because we can organize a little ferry to take us over to Dirk Hartog. And then we can drive and have that experience of driving all the way up that big banana-shaped island to get to the top and then drive back. And I said, yeah, fuck yeah, let's do that. I was all caught up in it, you know. So we did that. We, we got four big four-wheel drive vehicles. One by one, we're taken across to the island, and then we commence driving, and it's full-on driving. We cooked three vehicles getting halfway up there. You, you name it, we blew up three cars getting there, carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars of gear that they're just dumping. Yeah. Dump, dump it, dump it, dump it. We ended up with five people in uh, a troopie, pulling a tinny that's full of camera gear, supplies, water, etc. And we get about halfway up the island and then I stopped it all and said, hang on a minute, guys. We're, 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 we're running out of options. If something goes wrong with this vehicle now, what's your plan? What's the, what's the plan? I want to know what the plan is. And there wasn't one. And so I said to them, I don't, I don't take a dump without a plan. Because that's the way it has to be. There has to be a plan and a backup plan to that plan so you can default to something. A double redundancy means you won't get hurt. So we had a little chat and it was Elliot, the awesome director. And he goes, how about this? (laughs) And we can see the coast. We're in an elevated position. We can see the coast. There's a little bay down there. It's like two k's from where we were. Let's just drive straight there. We'll launch the tinny there. And we'll just motor up the last 80-odd Ks or whatever it was. I can't remember. Just hugging the coast. It's millpond calm. Yep. We'll put the camera gear in, the sound gear. We'll take me. We'll take Yuli, the German cameraman. We'll take Owen, the sound recordist, who's mm. this big hulking 
bearer of a man and you all in the tinny and we'll just poodle on out pull in do a little piece to camera we'll climb the 200 foot limestone cliffs to get to the top we'll do the piece to camera where the crevices and the plate was then we'll climb down have a little picnic wait for the sunset we'll do a nice closing piece to camera with the spielberg sunset hitting the limestone cliffs behind you we'll motor back camp here back the next day are you comfortable with that and i said that sounds awesome elliot let's do it so we launched the tinny and i'm standing in this thing with a stills camera taking pictures of the man-eating sharks that we saw dozens of while we poodled up because it's called shark bay for a reason right for sure yeah so we pull in had a picnic climb the rocks do the thing climb back down again have a little picnic elliot says sun setting let's do that piece to camera the closing shot yeah cool jump in the tinny we motor around to the northern tip and it's breathtaking it's this unbelievable sunset hitting those cliffs i'm dribbling just like just dribbling blah 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 blah. it was like the like the ending of grand designs you know when you know when kevin yeah. just talks shit about the house and he's, he's just not at he's it. just going and i started banging on about all this yeah all of it and i'm getting really into it and owen's loving it and elliot's like let's do another one just change that last bit of this. let's do another one let's do another one let's do another one bang a squall came through a violent squall came through from nowhere and if anybody on that boat should understand and know how fast the sea will kill you, it's me. And it hit us so hard and so fast and I was distracted and we'd been sucked out on the current about two k's from those cliffs. And in that current, the water turned black like ink. Big waves were hitting us and I know if I hit the water, I can't swim that far against that current. Yeah. And all I'm thinking about is all the sharks. And that's when I started looking and realized there were no flotation devices of any kind in that tinny. <laughs> there were no EPIRBs, no supplies, no nothing. Yeah. And I sat in that fucking thing, which is sinking now. There's two inches of aluminium poking out of the water. We're sinking and we're two k's from those cliffs. I was like a fat, succulent baby lamb realizing, oh, this is how I go out. Fuck. Yeah. Angry. Fuck. Owen started crying. Uh. You know, my wife's having a baby. And Yuli, the German cameraman, he just kept fucking filming. (laughs) (laughs) He just had the camera up against his head. And I'm sat there just yelling at everyone's, everyone's an arsehole. Fuck all of y'all, you know. This isn't how I'm supposed to go. Oh, motherfucker. I was just angry. I was just angry because I didn't check. And I let it happen. Because I was too, you know. Yeah. But you obviously got back. Yeah, obviously I got back, but it was luck, man. We weren't going to swim that. It wasn't going to work. We were going to drown and get Mm. eaten by sharks. That's what was going to happen. And Elliot focused. Some guys focus. Some guys freak out. Elliot focused. It was awesome. He He was just stood at the back. And he's looking at the cliffs. And I'm yelling all of my reasons why, you know, at him. I can't fucking swim that far over the wind and the rain and the, and the seas coming. And I can't swim that far in this current. Fuck you, Elliot. Like none of us can, you know, just, just angry, just nothing but angry. Mm. And he, he marched past, he waded past me and pushed my head out of the way, slapped Owen hard across the face. <laughs> he tried, he dropped his boom and his camera. It was all in the drink, right? Pulled Yuli 
away from the engine and flipped the cover off the the end but the, we got broadsided by a big wave and it killed the engine hmm. and um owen was trying to start it and was running the battery near flat uh, and we're getting sucked out in the current so elliot took the cover off the uh, off the outboard and uh threw it at me and said start bailing out with this and i was just like oh! and i'm bailing out like a man possessed there's water flying out in the air and he's got this backpacky belty belly belly baggy thing and he had a butane uh lighter and a little can of wd-40 and some other shit in there and he starts working on this engine um rips the camera out of yuli's arms and takes the waterproof cover off it and wraps that around the engine and got it started mm. and got that engine started our lives depended on that engine starting and it was misfiring, but it, he got it going. And we started motoring back towards those cliffs. I was bailing out about the same rate that the bow wave was taking on water. And we sank eventually about 30 meters from those vertical cliffs on the northern side. We all hit the drink and just swim for it, boys. And got to the cliffs. Hmm. Utterly exhausted. Everybody made it. And the sense of elation... The whole time I was waiting for a shark to eat me or I'd get tired, cramp up and just fucking drown, right? It didn't happen. We got to the, climbed the cliffs. Um, we got a fire going and we made it. Um, but it was horrible. Hmm. I thought, that's it. This is me. That's, that's how it happened. And they sent a helicopter and the chopper took me all the way to Perth and Claire was waiting with uh, the kids. I, I got off that chopper, just, you know, clothes ripped, all bloodied and fucked up and kissed the ground. And, and uh, she's like, oh, my God, they didn't tell her anything. Mm. What happened? And I said, just get me home, babe. Just get me home. So we jumped in the car and the producer's waiting in my driveway. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Are you going to sue us? I was like, no. No, not at all. It's just another funny story now, isn't it? It is now. <laughs> And then, sorry, your question was what next? So there, another show concept came up where Discovery um, had pestered Porsche and Mercedes enough to get access to this vehicle hmm. that Porsche have got in Stuttgart, tucked away in a basement somewhere. Uh, memory serves, it's called the T86. So during World War II, or rather, just before World War II kicked off, um, the Germans were in the US. There was an Olympics. Famously, Adolf Hitler wouldn't shake the hand of the African-American runner. Yeah. Um, well, because he's a Nazi, right? So he wasn't going to shake the man's hand. Um, and at the time, they were considered to be leading innovation and infrastructure. The technology coming out of Germany was... The airships were, were parked in New York and... Everybody was all loved up about the German work ethic and all that stuff. And the Nazis were just another political party that had some funny ideas about some things. Mm. So while he was there, um, Hitler heard about the land speed record and decided that Germany was going to take it away from the Americans. And after that event, they all fucked off back to the Reichstag and he um, sent some goose-stepping nut jobs round to Ferdinand Porsche's house and Heinrich ben Benz's house. And, uh, you know, they stuck a Luger in their ears and dragged them into the back of the car and drove them back to the Reichstag and marched them in front of uh, Hitler. 
and uh, and he said, right, you two blokes are going to get on, and uh, I'm going to give you a million Reichmarks, and you're going to build a motor car that'll break the land speed record, and you're going to do it in under a year, or I'll have you shot, I'll have your friends shot, and your friends' friends shot, and that that nice guy you bought a latte from on the way to work this moment, have him shot too, right? So off you go. So they went off and um, designed betwixt them through fear the T-86. And they got a Fokker Wolf pilot to drive this thing on the Volkswagen test. I don't know what it was called. The Reich circuit. Yeah. Where they would test things. And he smashed it. It went really fast. Uh... And then he invaded Poland, and uh, and uh, yeah, when you know, you know, the rest is history, right? Yeah, about the Britain and all that, all that. But the castle exists, hmm. quietly tucked away under Porsche, and discovery pestered them and pestered them and pestered them. It's still got swastikas all over it, hmm. and they said you can take photographs of it, and you can scan it with your lasers and stuff. Because the premise of the show was to build the T-86 from scratch using exactly the same tech and materials that they did back in 1930, can't remember. Mm. And I thought, Mm. how amazing. How unbelievably amazing. And I can speak German. And um, my mother's German. And, uh, you know, it was odd because the British side of the family were fighting Germany and the (laughs) the German side of the family were... So you can imagine Christmas at my place. No one got on. No. No. So I said, I like fast cars and and I can go fast and speak German and I can do TV. Because they wanted a presenter that would present the show and then get in the fucking thing and race it on the salt. And I I was like, I'm I'm your guy. I am so your guy. Let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. Uh, And the deal fell through. The show fell through. Mm. But I got I got into the top six um, people they were looking at. It fell through. It fell through. I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. So no, there's nothing planned. There's nothing. Last on. question I always ask my guests hmm. is it's a bit of a hypothetical question, but it it draws some interesting stuff out. If you could load a little nugget of knowledge into the collective consciousness everybody just gets it what would it be a nugget of consciousness if you could stick a nugget of knowledge to the collective consciousness the collective consciousness yes Paul's contribution so everyone just gets it oh fuck that's a really hard question it's not the answer will come to you straight away I've got a really skewed view about the collective consciousness. One singular thing. Oh, God. Oh, God. I've got a problem with plastic. Yeah. No plastic? 
There you go. Okay. <laughs> I think you've contributed enough in this discussion. Yeah, I'm just a hor- I'm just really. It's fine. I'm like, mate, we go and do a grocery shop, and we we go to the store where you bring all your own containers. Yeah. And you weigh them, and and you go to these hoppers, and you know, that's there's mm. a plastic ban. There's like no plastic. Yeah. So I'm really into the no plastic thing. Mm. Yeah. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks, mate. <laughs> it's been vivid. <laughs> it's been vivid. It's been scratch and sniff vivid. It has. It's, um, I think, like I said in the middle of it, it's been awesome to listen to someone who can actually tell stories. Because it's a lot, it's a dying art. Storytelling. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love storytelling. Public speaking stuff is fun if you get the right crowd. Yeah, um, and you can tell stories that are possibly not appropriate. Yes, if you get a, if you get a room of people that say just whatever you want to do, that's always good fun. Yes, I can imagine. If they let you drink while you're doing it, it's really good fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.